we start each day in the Lord's day filled with expectation and hope, we never know exactly what he's going to do, but we have a hope that he's going to do something. And I think it's in that expectation, when we enter in with that expectation, it gives him an open door to to aspects of our life and hallways in our life and things that he just wants to, to bring some clarity to. And I'm grateful to the Lord. And again, as Pastor Pablo said, I know that, that we have been in a season where we've had so many different guests coming and, and that there's a freedom that takes place in worship when we lift our hands. Why do we do that? Because, I, I, first of all, I want to take a posture before God that I'm not going to fight against him on anything he wants to accomplish in my life. I surrender, Lord. There, there's a, a position that we take of surrender that allows him to do some things in our life that many times we've been praying for. And so I'm grateful for the freedom that you've had in expression today. I'm freedom, thankful for the ministry of, of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and the way that you all responded to that. Today I want to jump back into a topic that I started last week, and we have been on a series called What is Truth? Understanding that we live in a, in a culture today where truth is in crisis. Everybody is trying to pick their own things as what we're going to believe, and why is this truth, and, and why is this my truth? And, and uh, last week and this week we've been diving into a subject that is, not, that is not in my wheelhouse, so I have had to rely entirely upon really, really smart people and their books as it relates to, can I believe the Bible and science? Can I believe the Bible and science? And you're going, well, why are we talking about that? Because we live in a culture today that I think it's important for Christians to be intelligent, that we be able to give a reason for the faith that we have and that we can, that we can address skeptics, whether they be skeptics of Christianity or, or skeptics of the Bible or of Jesus, and that we have a common ground that we can address them on. And so if you're just joining us today for the very first time, I would encourage you to go to our website at graceagsyracuse.com and follow the promptings, and you can listen to all of the messages that we've had within this series. And again, this morning, I want to credit Dr. James Bradford and Dr. Wave Nunley and Dr. Stephen Meyer for providing so much of the material that I've used these past uh, several weeks. And then Christmas Eve... And the 26th, next Sunday, I'm going to be wrapping up this series uh, with the title of those messages are, be, are going to be, Is Christmas True? Is Christmas True? And so we're going to wrap this series up as we tie it together in Christmas. And so, by the way, the services on the 23rd and the 24th are exactly the same. We do that because we have a lot of families that were missing Christmas Eve service because you have big family gatherings on that night. So we wanted to provide an opportunity for you to come and join us an evening early. So that is why we provide both of those. Father, as we approach you today, we recognize that you're already here. We entered into your presence in fact, you have been preparing this place for everybody that is sitting here and everybody that is watching online for just this moment. And so I ask that you would lead us and guide us. May our hearts and our minds and our intellect be expanded as we study what you have done. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There's a theme verse that we have used from the very beginning of this, and it was Jesus' declaration to a world where truth is in crisis and wondering what is truth when Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus was not afraid to address the subject of truth and say, it is found in me. And in the discussion of how faith and science fit, probably the most controversial issue in all of this is the creation issue. 
Uh, we often hear questions as it relates to that. And critics say, doesn't Genesis 1 mean that you can no longer believe the Bible given what I have learned in my science classes? And the answer to that is no, but why? No, but why? And so we're going to look at the biblical account of creation today, and we're going to start with the very first verse in the Bible. And so I'm going to ask if you have your Bibles with you, or if you don't, it will be posted for you. When we talk about God creating the heavens, it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I need you to understand as we start this today that all of existence pivots on the truthfulness of this statement. You see, if there's no creator, then this is a make-or-break deal. If there is no creator, then you and I don't have anybody to be accountable to. If there is no creator, it reduces your existence to the fact that you are a mistake. If there is no creator, then your value will be defined only by the opinion of the majority, and that is it. But if we were intentionally created, if we were put here on purpose, that changes the whole narrative. That is the pivot point. And any attempt that an unbelieving world will use to attack you and to deconstruct your faith will have to start with this question. Has to start there. Last week, I showed you some pictures from Dr. Richard Hammer, and I'm going to show you a few more today. Dr. Hammer is the, legal, uh, the chief legal counsel for the Assembly of God. He also teaches astronomy at Evangel University, and we had a chance to look at some of his photos last week, and I want to show you a few more today in this, because God didn't just create the skies, he created the heavens the universe, the stars, the planets, the galaxy. He did it all. And so the first slide that I would like to show you is the Pleiades cluster. Now, I messed that name up bad in the first service, and all of my science people pointed it out to me. I practice between services. You get the best message. They get the best energy. You get the best message. So this is the Pleiades cluster, or also known as the Seven Sisters. And it is one of the closest star clusters to our Earth because it only would take you 450 years at the speed of light to reach this one. And it is spectacular. In fact, I wish that we had an IMAX screen up here and the lights were low so that you could capture the, the depth and the colors of this image. Interesting enough, Pleiades is mentioned three times in the Bible, twice in Job and once in Amos. The next picture is the Orion Nebula. And the Orion Nebula is also mentioned in the Bible. Now, to give you just a sense of the scope of this particular picture, if you were to measure it from the top of where you see the milky part to the bottom of where you see that, it would span 150 trillion, with a T, trillion miles. That is how big the Orion Nebula is. I want to show you a little close-up picture of one part of this nebula. And if you look at this, you can begin to see some of the spectacular colors that God has painted into this for us to begin to enjoy. 
Our God is a remarkable creator and a phenomenal painter. The next slide that I would like to show you is of the Rosetta Nebula. This beautiful image is in our galaxy and is 5,000 light years away. And even with really, really strong telescopes, it's hard to see. In fact, Richard Hammer got this picture after 26 hours of continuous exposure with his camera. 26 hours to get this photo. There is a massive star at its core that emanates radiation and iodized gases that blow a hole right through the middle of the larger cloud that makes it look from our perspective as we are looking at this as if it is a rose without thorns. And I would like to keep this picture up here for just a moment as we, as we think about this. How do we know God created this? Can we prove scientifically that God created this? And the answer to that is no. But here's the reason the answer is no. Because the tools of science are limited. The tools of science are limited. The laws of nature limit what we can know about nature for various reasons. But this Rosetta Nebula exists there. And I can't take the limited tools of science and absolutely prove that God created it, except that last week when we looked at what science is telling us, we discovered these three things. The universe had a beginning. The laws of nature are finely tuned beyond the probability of it being by chance. And biological life is coded and loaded with information. And as we saw last week, None of those things of science takes our faith away, doesn't even threaten our faith, but it tends to point to the truth of the Creator. Now, I am not in the camp that says that just because you can't explain something means that God exists. I, be, they, I believe that that gap between science and the proof of creation is closing. The more that science begins to reveal and the smarter that we get and the tools that we have available is not disproving God. It is proving more and more the existence of God. So should the Lord tarry, I believe that there will be a time when science will catch up and begin to prove to this more and more. The amazing thing to see in all of this is that we see that our God is pretty remarkable and that nothing that we have discovered in science actually takes our faith away, even though that is not what is probably being taught to you and your children in classes and schools and universities today. I am going to quote some renowned scientists that are non-believers today and if you want to, you can take the QR code in front of you and click on it, and there's an outline that has an outline of my message, and I believe the quotes are there. I noticed in the first service people were taking pictures of these quotes, and you can do that as well. But I want to point out to you what non-believing scientists have to say as it relates to faith and science. Michael Denton is a biochemist. He's a geneticist, and he's an agnostic. And this is what he writes. It is really credible, or excuse me, is it really credible that random processes could have constructed a reality, the smallest element of which, a functional protein or gene, is complex beyond our creative capacities, a reality that is the very antithesis of chance, 
which excels in every sense anything that is produced by the intelligence of man. Michael Denton, agnostic, biochemist, geneticist. So this agnostic is saying, we can't figure this out. But what we do see is that it reflects a genius, a super intellect that defies our abilities to understand it. Then there's Fred Hoyle. He predicted and found carbon residence, which is part of the potential for carbon-based life to even exist. And he is an atheist. And here is what he quoted. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed. I love that word. <laughs> has monkeyed with physics <laughs> as well as with chemistry and biology. And that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost, there's his way out, almost beyond question. An astronomer, mathematician, and an atheist. And then there's Robert Jastrow. Now, I have been waiting all series long for this quote to be able to share this one to you. I love this one so much. Again, he's an agnostic. He has no agenda whatsoever to push the Christian movement. And he came to this conclusion. And this is my favorite quote in the whole series. For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And he pulls himself over the final rock. And he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> I love it. When we finally reach the pinnacle of what we can know, God got there first. Amen. And the people that believed in God got there first. That is pure classic. This is where science goes. And I repeat, there is an underground movement of scientists that are converting to Christ at unbelievable rates, although that's not what you are going to hear in the media or in our educational system because it doesn't fit their materialistic agenda. So that is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens. But it also says that God created the earth. And in verse 2 of Genesis 1, it says, Now the earth, and I need you to picture this with me. I need you to put on your thinking caps. That's an old term that our teachers used to tell us when I was in school, which meant pay attention to this. Because there's going to be some challenging things that come out of this for us. Now the earth, in other words, there was an earth, a created earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So he creates the universe. He creates the galaxies and the nebula and all of these spectacular heavenly bodies, and he creates the earth. And so here we find in, earth, in Scripture, the earth is described to us as this. It is dark. It is void. It is formless. It is empty, and it is covered by dark water. 
And so this biblical description gives us the early stages of the development of the earth, but it says that God's spirit was hovering. How many of you know that when God's spirit hovers, there's an anticipation he's about to act? And so whenever God's spirit is hovering over the emptiest and darkest places of our life, there is always hope. Somebody needed to hear that today. But God's spirit is hovering over these waters. So now we have a planet that is covered with water. It's dark and it's formless. And what happens now is that God begins to speak. Because it says, the next three words, Then God said. How many of you are glad God has the last word? And what follows in Genesis chapter 1 are called the six days of creation that takes the earth from formless and lifeless and dark and empty to what we see today, which is thriving with life. I would like to put up one more picture. The marble earth picture. And I want to leave it up for just a few minutes. This is the most iconic picture taken almost 50 years ago when one of the Apollo 17 astronauts on their way to the moon took this picture of this beautiful, beautiful earth that God indicates to us shows his amazing creative genius. The sixth Creative days will now begin to outfit our planet from formless and dark and covered with water to this. And I'm going to take a risk here. I'm going to ask you to do something that is dangerous for any pastor to do this close to noon. In fact, it's exactly noon. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And I want to read some things to you that I need you each and every one of you with the creativeness that God has placed in your mind, I need you to just think what this looked like as I read to you the things that God said in Genesis 1 and what that might have looked like. Go ahead and close your eyes. Begin to imagine. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. The next thing God said was, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters and he called sea. And God said that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. 
And God made great, two great lights, the greater to govern the day, the lesser to govern the night. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures and let the birds fly over the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living creature and moving thing with which the waters did teem according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and he blessed it. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, and over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it. Thus the heavens and the earth was completed in all their vast array. Now please open your eyes. Some of you have incredible imaginations. Some of you... I hope that there was an explosion of imagery that took place when you hear, hear the words of God. And as we look at this, I hope your imagination went crazy, but to go from formless and empty and dark to this is incredible. It's one of the most elegant descriptions of creation that you will find in any religion because it gives us the highest view of God and also the highest view of mankind or humanity that you will find anywhere. This would have been earth-shattering for Israel because they were surrounded by nations that had multiple gods, not one creator God, and those gods that they had that they were surrounded by were fickle and narcissistic and lazy, and their beliefs were that human beings had been created to become slave labor for them to make their life easier as gods. And then comes Genesis 1, and out of nowhere you find a place where the view of God is high and the view of mankind that he created is high. And the big question that comes from what we just read as it relates to science and faith is this. Was that poetry or was that actual history? Was Genesis 1 poetry or was it history? And the answer is yes. Because scripture is so incredible, the answer is yes. What we read was unbelievably poetic, but there's a creative structure to it that we can begin to look at and see that God knew what he was doing. And so I want you to think with me for just a moment of what happened to the earth to take it from formless and empty to form and fullness. And there's a structure to these creative days that scientists love to study. I'm going to be putting up uh, something for you to look at here that gives a beautiful picture of how this works together because on the left side you have day one, day two, day three, which addresses the form that God created. And then that's what brought form to formlessness. And then there's day four, day five, and day six, which address the issues of the fullness of what God put on the form that he created. And so these days correspond. I want you to look at this. Day one, light, dark corresponds with day four when he 
creates light and darkness in new ways and gives a, a, a sun and the moon. Day two corresponds with day five and the fact that there was sea and air and then because that form was created, then those that live in the sea and the air were created, the fullness of that. And then there's day three and day six, which is the land and the vegetation. And then following that creation, the fullness of it was that there was creatures and humans. Even from scientists that don't believe in God, they would say this. If the earth was to have structure, this is exactly how it would have to happen. It fits this way together. There's an undeniable poetic structure to Genesis 1 that God is responsible for everything here, and it's beautiful. And so for each of you, while you were imagining the explosion of creation, let me just put you in a little boat on dark, formless earth in the middle of dark water for a moment and watch what happens all around you from the creative days because it stunningly makes perfect scientific sense. And this was written ages ago in a totally pre-scientific era of our world, and yet it's so precise. You have, in day one, the transformation of the Earth's atmosphere from opaque, which was dark, to translucent, which is foggy. In other words, I can't see everything, but I can see some things. That was day one. You have the formation of a stable water cycle that separates the sky from the earth in that in day two. You have the establishment of con continents and oceans on day three. You have the production of plants on the continents in day three. You have the transformation of the atmosphere from translucent, which would have been foggy, to transparent, which is clear, on day four. You have the production of small sea animals on day five. The creation of birds on day five. The making of land mammals on day six and culminates with the creation of mankind on day six. This makes perfect scientific sense all the way through. So Genesis 1 is absolutely astounding. It is poetry and it is history all at the same time. And it holds together the highest view of God and the highest view of humanity that any religious literature anywhere in the world could hold to. But here's the question that aggravates most people. Some people feel like, I can't be a Christian because of the controversy of this question. When did this happen? The Bible talked about days. And there are three camps. There's the camp of the young earth creationists. There is the camp of the old earth creationists, and there is the camp of the evolutionary creationists. The young earth creationists believe that all of this happened, judging from the genealogies of the Old Testament, 6,000 years ago, at the tops 10,000 years ago. That God created the universe and all of the animals and all human beings between 6 and 10,000 years ago. Most scientists today believe that the, our planet Earth is 4.5 billion years old and that the universe is 13.7 billion years old. But young earth creationists believe that if we're going to believe God's word at all, then we have to believe that it happened 6,000 years ago. The second theory within the church is this. There's old earth creationists. They believe that God is still the creator of everything, no doubt about that, but that the earth is four and a half billion years old and that the universe is 13.7 billion years old. 
And they believe that the word day in Genesis, and this is important, that the word day in Genesis in Hebrew also has another meaning that could be entirely correct, and that means era rather than just 24-hour day. And that God did create all of these things, but it took place over a longer period of time than the historic narrative would allow us to believe if you were a young earth believer. But it does correspond with the explosion of lives at certain times rather than 24-hour days being eras. But they believe that God directed and orchestrated everything and created Adam and Eve or mankind at the pinnacle of his creation. They cite biblical chapters such as this to indicate that God can control times. Because you know that in Joshua chapter 10, when God caused the sun and the moon to stop so that Israel, in the middle of a battle, could have more sunlight to finish the job, they said, if God can do that then, why could he not have moved the sun and the earth at a slower pace so that it could be eras that would create this? And then there is a growing body of believers in church circles that are called evolution, evolutionary creationists. And they are saying... Yes, we are here because of God. But God either set the initial conditions for evolution, as I have learned about in my biology classes to have happened, or God actually guided the evolutionary processes so that the most unlikely outcome happened, and that is that we are here on this beautiful planet enjoying life. Now, Dr. James Bradford, who has been one of my key sources for this entire series was sent by the Assemblies of God to represent us at the Association of the Advancement of Faith and Science Conference, a worldwide conference where some of the most brilliant scientists of the world came together as they were trying to figure out how does faith and science fit together. And Dr. Bradford said this, most of the speakers that were speaking from a position of faith were speaking from the position of evolutionary creationists. Not all, but there were many. Their issue wasn't does Genesis 1 contradict science, but their issue was how can we as scientists make a case against the bias of the media and against the bias of the educational system that is telling our children that this is how everything happened. How do we gain a hearing in in an educational setting? It wasn't that the Bible is inconsistent with science but that God could choose to do it however he wanted. So there are evolutionary creationists, there are old earth creationists, and there are young earth creationists. And I realize today that there are many of you that are highly passionate about whatever area you have decided to fall on. And as a result of that, you hold a strict view to the point where you may not be changed. I found it very interesting, and let me just share this with you. I found it very interesting that the three men that I most highly respect as it relates to science and the faith, the way that I have studied and what I read of them, that they... Although they live their lives in complete trust and faith in Jesus Christ, all three of them believe a different story. All of them, phenomenal scientists, marvelous Christians, great preachers. And so let me say this. At the risk of making people angry at me, because I might have promoted a view that is not yours, 
The most important thing I'm going to say in this whole series is this. Your salvation does not rise and fall on how old you believe the earth to be. Whether it is billions of years or whether it is 6,000 years old, to be saved, to have a relationship with God, you must believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You must believe that you are a sinner in need of saving and that after him dying for you that he was buried in a tomb and that he rose again overcoming death and hell and the grave and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven waiting for you and has sent his Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you in all truth. That is what you have to believe to be saved. And it is not like unless that we all agree that everybody else is going to be shunned by God going, oh, you blew it. I would, have, I would have let you in if you'd have just believed this particular part of how old the earth was. But, you know, you're on the wrong side of that one, so I'm sorry. That, that's not the way God is. In fact, after having stated all of that for the last two weeks, I come down to this. I view this as an in-house controversy among Christians. But I never want it to be the reason that anybody in our world does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The question is not, is the earth 6,000 years or did God use evolution? The question is, are you created or not? Are you created or not? And so here's what science is telling us. The universe had a beginning. The laws of nature are finely tuned beyond the probability of chance and there is information somehow that has been coded into us at creation. Worship team, I'm going to ask if you'd please come. I want to share with you what Dr. Michael Tennyson, Ph.D. in biology and a professor at Evangel University, who co-authored a book with Stephen Badger called Christian Perspectives on Origins. He said, here is what we scientists know. We scientists who have faith. Human history had a beginning. There is only one God, and he is Yahweh. God is personally and intimately involved in his creation. God considered his creation good. God created everything, including life in the physical universe. God brought everything into existence for his own purposes. Humans and only humans are created in God's image. God created humans to live in a loving relationship with him and with each other. The first humans disobeyed God and sinned, destroying our relationship with God. God punished humans for disbelieving and disobeying him. And the rest of Genesis, indeed, the rest of the Bible reveals God's great desire for fellowship with humans to be restored, which leads us to a passage of scripture that we all know so well, but I want you to cloak this in a scientific way. 2 Corinthians 5:17. Therefore, and therefore covers all of science, all of this, as we get to this point. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation, do you see that word? God's not done creating yet. Every time somebody responds to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, there's a new creation. There's a new creation. He's doing something new in you. Today, some of you were at the altar because you needed something new done in you. You needed this creation process that God spoke to be alive in you. 
He says, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All of this is from, all, all, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation so that we can stand in front of a skeptical world and give an answer for what we believe. This great creation of God is about recreating your heart and your life. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are therefore, there's that word therefore again, in light of all of these things that we have learned, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Church, it's not good enough for us to sit here quietly. We are prepared to step into the world of, that is in a crisis of truth and be ambassadors for the great creator. We are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The whole story of the Bible is God chasing lost people to bring them back into relationship. And that's what everything is about from Genesis 3 all the way to the end. He says, I still want you as your creator. I still want a relationship with you. Would you be reconciled to me? And God made that possible in spite of our sin through Jesus Christ. And I close with this verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21. God who made him. Now I want you to just stop and focus on that word for a moment. Made. God is making. God is creating. There was, there was an aspect of God creating even in the redemption story. God created him who had no sin to be sin for us. Whenever you look at Easter and, you, and, and Good Friday and you see when Jesus is crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was God creating all of our sin and placing that on him. He became that. To him who had no sin, to be sin. Sin for me. So that in him we might become the creative process, the righteousness of God. There is no other faith in the world that even remotely comes close to this.